All right, so this will be, I mean, this is always a good topic, so we'll jump into this one. This one will always, seems to wake you up. But talking about, Paul talks about homosexuality, right? And so he lists it, and there's a lot of other sins on this list, but I know usually as we're reading through this list, that's probably the one that grabs our attention the most, just because it's so culturally prevalent. It's just something we deal with a lot. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. Um, a lot of these things I took, I, I took a class, I was just telling uh, Jeff up here, I took a class last semester on 1 Corinthians, so that's where a lot of these notes are coming from. I took it with Jay Smith, who's a, a really great guy, and uh, really enjoyed his class a lot, and he spent a lot of time, he teaches, I didn't take it with him, but he also teaches a class on sexual ethics, and so got a little bit of kind of sexual ethics, so we'll talk about some of this stuff here, but just like, uh, a lot of these are his bullet points that I just kind of reworded and put in a format that's a little simpler, um, but we know it's sinful because it's placed on a list with other more culturally acceptable acceptable sins. So you got things that like every. I mean, the fact that it's in a vice list that kind of goes through and, and says, "Man, homosexuality." Is, I mean, these are this, if anybody says it's not sinful, that's or if they say the Bible doesn't teach that homosexuality is sinful, then I don't know why Paul would put it on this list of sins. Like it just doesn't make sense. So we know that homosexuality is sinful. It's sinful. But he doesn't he doesn't elevate it or place it below or above heterosexual sins, right? So it's not it's not anything that's any more evil than, you know, heterosexual sins, right? So we don't have to make it a bigger deal than it is, but we can't ignore it either. It's a sin just the way we'd view heterosexual sins. And the list doesn't talk about action or it doesn't talk about orientations, right? It's not talking about orientations, it's talking about actions, right? So these are homosexual actions. Like it's not it's not just an orientation that's not necessarily sinful because predisposition doesn't necessitate necessitate sin, right? So you always have the example like when people struggle with alcoholism, right? We even if they might have a genetic disposition that we find towards alcoholism, that that doesn't mean that we don't try to help them with that. I mean, like we're not going to let someone just be an alcoholic just because they have a disposition that maybe it's easier for them to fall into that sin or to get caught up in that lifestyle. That doesn't mean we're just going to be like, oh, they have a predisposition to drinking like crazy and and losing control. But it's no big deal. They have a predisposition to that. You know, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And it's the same thing with homosexuality, right? Just because you just because someone might have a tendency that way, we might find genetic proof if we do or we don't. I don't know if maybe I haven't caught. On studies, but um, it's not it's not going to change what God's word has to say on it, right? And then some people like to go, well, Paul's just talking about you know he's just talking about pederasty, which was which was when an adult male had um, homosexual relations with an underage boy, and, or they say it was just homosexual prostitution that's bad. It's not really it's not this monogamous loving marital relationship. And the, if you look at, like, you could look at the Greek, but the Greek just doesn't, it doesn't allow for that. You, the words just don't in any way, it, it just can't be just those two. It, it just doesn't work. And uh, and the other thing that's really encouraging is 6.11. It says, you know, we know that all these sins can be abandoned, right? All the, all the heterosexual, all the homosexual actions, they can be abandoned because Paul says some of you guys were like that. Some of you guys were homosexual. Some of you guys were heterosexuals. And you know what? It can be abandoned. It's not something that just characterizes everything for the rest of your life. So there is hope that, you know, it's not something that you just, you can't ever deal with or God can't ever conquer, right? God has the ability to do that. So any questions with, as far as that? Just kind of brief. I mean, that's a, that's a brief glance, but just some little things without taking up three hours. I mean, you could easily have another class on homosexuality. But uh, just some good things to keep in mind. And then this is this is what I think is really like this is probably what I found when I took the class with uh, with Jay Smith last semester. I found this to just be really interesting because 
I had no idea about slogans. Um, when I read First Corinthians, I was like, what in the world are we talking about? But it just it opens up so much truth with, and a lot of people really distort um, verses that are slogans. So we're going to, slogans are basically, you've got like, they're these short, pithy, proverbial statements, right? So they're, they're these things that are basically quotes of the, the Corinthians. So Paul kind of quotes them for things that they would probably, they would say, right? So, you know, like, just do it or something like that. It'd be like they have these slogans that they kind of distorted that might have been like a misapplication of Paul's words. Like, they, like Paul might have said that, but they took it out of context and applied it to, like, everything. And he's like, no, 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 no. You guys are not. That's not what I said. Or um, And it usually, like, most of them seem to, like, they usually seem to be associated with people who just wanted to indulge their flesh. So they would use Paul's words and they'd be like, it'd give them an excuse to indulge their own desires. And so I put like the passages on here that, and most of them you'll see like translations vary on this. Like, and some of them they make it difficult because the way they, they, uh, they render the text. Like some will have quotes and you'll see that as you're reading along. You'll see that they put it in quotes. And that will be, the, that's their way of saying this is not Paul's words. These are the Corinthians' words. So some people like to, you know, they just misapply it. And they, they, they end up saying this is stuff you should do. And it's like, no, 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 don't do that. That's what the Corinthians thought. And Paul's trying to correct them, right? So we don't agree with that at all. Um, so those are the ones that are likely or at the top. And then the other ones are possible. Like, it's difficult just because, like, in Greek, they don't have quotation marks. It would have been a lot more helpful if they could put everything in quotation marks because then we'd know, like, where it ends and where it starts. And sometimes it's just like, I think if they read this, they would know for sure because they're just, they'd know the language better and they'd know exactly what Paul's doing. But 2,000 years later, we struggle to be like, wait, where's that quotation in? I'm not sure. So there's a possibility. Like, some of these may or may not be, but just so you know, if you run across them, just to be like, well, maybe that's a view of the Corinthians. Just to, yeah, don't be terribly strong on trying to voice that as Paul's opinion. It may not be his opinion. All right. So with that said, we're going to look at one here. And this is the first one that uh, most people agree upon. And it says, uh, all things are lawful for me. Right. So you got the quote. You can see this is all my quotes in this are from the ESV. I did English Standard Version. It's really good. If you don't have an English Standard, I don't have one, but a lot of guys on staff love their English Standard Version study Bible. They're really great if you don't. I mean, Philip, you're looking at me like, no, it's not that great. But... um, <laughs> but it is I mean it's a good basic resource I, I enjoy it. it it usually makes the text fairly simple and clear but uh, but yeah so that's where they're all coming from where some translations they just don't use quotes at all just so you're aware I don't know which ones off the top of my head but some don't so it gets a little more tricky with those to kind of catch this um, but it says like all things are lawful for me so that's probably the Corinthians that are saying I can do whatever I want everything's lawful and Paul's like no, not everything's lawful. Not everything's beneficial. Like you, you can't just do whatever you want. That's stupid. You'll get yourself into trouble. And he says, no, not all things are helpful. And they could be like, oh man, all things are lawful for me. And he's like, no. Paul's like, I don't want to be enslaved by anything. I don't, I'm not going to do any everything. I just can't. Like part of knowing Christ is that I have limited freedom. Like I just can't do everything that I want to do to indulge my flesh anymore. I don't have that ability. Like you guys think you do. And so he's trying to correct that. And then here's another one right after it says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? So they're just like, man, my body was made for my belly and uh, my belly was made for food, right? And it's like, and Paul's like, no, no, you guys are just off in left field. God's going to destroy both of those. Like those are both going to not be here, right? I mean, it's not, that's not what we're living for. He's like, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, right? So they're just like, man, I got sexual desires. I can just do whatever I want because that's the way God made me. That's just who I am. And, and Paul's like, 
No, no, your body's not. God did not make you to have sexual immorality. He did not design you that way, right? I think I heard, uh, I don't know if you guys are here for the Sunday, but there is one where they did the quote from, uh, what was it, the Summit Ministries, where they had one of the guys speaking of the Chuck Colson thing like a month ago. And I remember one of the quotes in there, the guy was saying, he's like, uh, emotions are like muscles, right? They've got to be developed, right? So it's kind of, part of that is like, man, we've got to learn to control our desires, right? They're good. God gave them to us. Yes, he did. But he, he we've got to learn to, to put them in submission to Christ's will and what he wants for us. And part of that is with sexual immorality also, right? So we don't live to satisfy ourselves. We live to satisfy the Lord. And then we got another one comes up in 618, right? So it says, Flee from sexual immorality. So that's Paul's words right there, the first part. And then the ESV doesn't, I don't think they see this one as possibly a quote. I think if you look at something like the NET and another one do, so they put it in quotes. And I think it probably makes more sense if it's in quotes because it just, it gets really confusing if you don't see it that way. See, the way I rendered it, I took the ESV and I'm trying to help you out here. Because the the net might be, I could have done the net, but I wanted to be consistent, so I stuck with the ESV. But it says, every sin a person commits is outside the body, right? So that's probably what the Corinthians are saying. Now, if you don't agree with that, like they would make this like all Paul's words, then you could take it, like some people do it theologically. So it's like sin, what Paul is saying is sin is like, it's sexual sin is worse than other sins. Like it seems to be like, if you commit sexual sins, that's like a unique sin. It's like a in a class all by itself. Or you can have, you know, like philosophically, like people might be like, well, that means that sin corrupt, like sin, sexual sin is worse because it corrupts the whole person, right? So they, you've got to figure out a way, like why is sexual sin worse than other sins? And it gets it gets really confusing. And that's why I think it's better to, that this is probably the Corinthians that are saying, you know. Sexual sins are sexual sins are, uh, are every sin a person commits is outside the body, and so they're saying every sin outside the body it's yeah it's it's fair game like if it's it's not that big of a deal, and and Paul's like um, sin applies to the body right your body does not it's not just you know you can't just write off well I did that with my body because God designed me that way it's not that big of a deal and you know what my body's not gonna be resurrected anyways so it's not that big of a deal because then. First Corinthians, we'll get there, hopefully, if we go fast. First Corinthians fifteen twelve says, you know, some of them didn't believe in the resurrection. So part of it is you got maybe that's coming in here. You know, it's like, I can do whatever I want with my body because my body's not going to be raised from the grave, so it doesn't matter. Like, my body's going to die anyways, and I'm going to go be in heaven or float around like a fairy. And so, man, I don't need, who cares about my body? Well, who cares if I get an STD or whatever? It doesn't matter. It's going to die anyways, you know? And I think, I think that kind of captures more is they just kind of had this like, eh, it doesn't matter. And Paul's like, yes, it does. It does matter. Every sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And I think like Jude 10, I put that in here because I think, man, I just see that applying to the Corinthians. It just says, but these people blaspheme all that they do, not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, right? So it's like they're behaving like animals. They just, they just let their desires just kind of rule their flesh. All right, so moving on here. So we got... This is kind of like first half of the book is kind of done because now Paul kind of transitions and he's like, now concerning the matters about which he wrote. So now he's going to start diving into the stuff that they probably asked him about or questions they had for him. All right, so one of them is like, okay, so now matters about which... Is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? And this is really... Man, this is confusing because... Paul's response, I would think, like, we, usually in church we talk about sex is always absolutely amazingly good. It is like the perfect, 
absolutely most sanctified thing to reflect intimacy with God. And we really, I mean, we've almost went, like, because I think in the past culture, sex was viewed as dirty and evil and horrible, we've almost maybe went to the opposite extreme and made sex, like, beautiful and perfect and everything God ever wanted. And, like, you've got to get married and if you remain single. And Paul just says he actually kind of agrees with them, which is kind of weird. He's like, yes... But, and so that's kind of how most of the slogans, like a lot of the slogans are like, yeah, you're partially right, but. And that's that's interesting to think, because they're saying, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? So these, there's some in Corinth that were just like, they just practice abstinence. They're like, we're not going to have sex. Even if they were married, they would practice abstinence. And Paul's like, yes, you're right, but. And that's interesting, because you don't hear that talked about much in marriage. It's like, sex all the time, good. I mean, it's and it's... Paul seems to be like, yes, abstinence, even in marriage, is preferred. But you guys are forgetting a few things. Let me add to it. And so he says, if you read the rest, it seems like he goes into, you know, you guys are ignoring temptation, for one, because Satan can tempt you. So that's why you shouldn't practice abstinence solely in marriage, because you leave yourself open to affairs and ugly stuff that you don't want. And so you got to be aware of that. And so I think Paul's practical and realizes you just can't always remain abstinence in marriage. It's just not always going to work. And he says, and also, and this is another one that usually you'll hear that, but abstinence in marriage ignores devotion, right? So there's something about not having sex that seems to be like in some way that sex hinders or impedes devotion to Christ. In some way, there's something there. Now, I don't, don't, don't go to the opposite extreme. Sex is not ugly. It's not evil but there's definitely something where it's not maybe the most sanctified thing either because even in the old testament you know after sex like they would be cast out of the like they would have to get clean and be cast out of the the community for a while so there seems to be something where sex is not maybe in some way it prevents us from devotion which is interesting so paul prefers abstinence in marriage prefers it but he realizes that's not always going to be the case because of temptation so and here's the conditions right so if you're going to be absent in marriage it needs to be both of you agreed not just one person both are agreed and it needs to be a short period of time you don't want to make it forever i mean obviously make it short make it reasonable right and and the purpose is for devotion right it's for devotion right so it seems there seems to be something there and i I, you got to look at whenever you start getting strange. I know it's maybe it sounds strange. It sounded strange. I was arguing with my professor for a while, but now I think I kind of more agree with him a little bit. But Augustine, you know, he says this, which is a church father from the fourth century. And uh, if you can, always, it's helpful sometimes to look back and find what they say in history because if it agrees with you, sometimes you'd be like, this is kind of maybe what they thought too. And it says, it is not arduous and difficult for faithful married people to do for a few days what holy widows have undertaken and which holy virgins do throughout their lives. So let devotion be kindled and self-gratification be checked. And uh, I, just, I, I think there's something there. There's something, so, so try to have a balance, right? But in, in marriage, equality, mutual benefit of the husband and the wife's sexual relationship, right? And uh, I heard Todd once, <clears throat> he's like, when you get married... It's kind of like putting a loaded gun to your head, right? You basically, you're handing that other person a loaded gun, right? The man, you got to trust them, right? Because and, and these verses, like they talk about, you know, the husband has no authority over his body. The wife does. And the wife has no authority over her body. The husband does. So there's equal authority there. And I, I, it's sad that so many people get distorted that, you know, physical abuse is bad or, or physical abuse isn't that big of a deal. No, sorry. No, it is bad. It is bad. It's bad. Bad. <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> physical abuse is bad, but I mean, like these verses seem to like I don't know. It's like sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Speak up. You're here. But uh, but yeah, physical abuse. I mean, like physical abuse should not be tolerated. I mean, I think those verses, like if you read them, chapter seven, like men the the wife has no authority over her body and the husband has no authority over his. Like you can't in any way tolerate physical abuse or verbal abuse. That's just not. It doesn't make any sense. So I mean. It can't be tolerated. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily a reason for divorce, but it, it can't be tolerated either. Um, and I think Paul's whole point here is singleness is better than marriage, right? Because you don't have to deal with all these. I mean, even I was, thinking, I, was thinking, I was thinking about it. I'm like, I wouldn't even have to stress about the baby coming on the day I'm teaching this class if I wasn't married. There's just so many other things that Paul says, you know, you're divided when you're married. It's like, I want to serve my wife. I want to teach this class. I want to do this, but I got to you know, serve my wife. And man, I, single people, you're, you're blessed sometimes not to have to deal with the... Uh, the curse of, of two two people you're trying to love, right? And so, um, I, I don't think we uplift our single brothers in Christ enough and encourage them um, in the way that God's uh, placed them for whatever time. All right, so, as we continue, just uh, so then Paul talks about divorce. He says, "Only let each person lead the life that Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called them." This is my rule in all the churches, right? So Paul's saying is like, man, remain married if you can. Just stay put. Like, remain married. There's no reason to. Don't go looking for loopholes, right? It's not. It's not trying to figure out how to get out of marriage, right? And and I think part of this is like God's grace extends to those who are divorced, right? It's just because you're divorced. It, God can still work through that. He does work through that. He has worked through that. He will work through that, right? And so. Part of it in 739 is like, don't prevent God from putting things back together by remarrying someone. That's why if you get a divorce, he's like, don't get remarried because you don't know what God's going to do. Like, you don't know. And God can do amazing things. And don't prevent him from doing that. And so the goal of marriage, like I know I've heard Todd, he says this so much. He's like, the goal of marriage is not to prevent divorce, but to pursue oneness, right? We're not just trying to, like, stay undivorced, but we really want to be one, right? And so... Paul's thing is like, he's so focused on Christ coming back. He's so focused on God's word that he's like, it's just not the same thing with sin. It's just not, it's better just to be, you know, materially wrong. It's, it's just better. It's kind of the same thing with, it's why, why waste your time getting married? Like, don't even, it's not, it's not worth it, you know? And so he's like, don't worry about your status change. Don't worry about marital, vocational, physical, as far as like circumcision, he's not even like, don't even change your, like it's not worth getting circumcised or not. So that's not a big deal. You know, like follow Christ. Um, be content, not discontent, right? So now I don't think, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't get married. I mean, Paul says, you know, if you got the opportunity and God, you know, and you guys are passionate about each other, like it's, it's better to probably get married, right? And so you don't have to feel like you're stuck in singleness. But man, just uh, there's something, there's nothing wrong with being single. In fact, single allows you to serve God. I'm guessing probably some of the, People who are going to have a lot of rewards in heaven are going to probably be single people who sacrificed and gave that up to God and have a lot of rewards to, to steward for it. So don't look at it as something bad. And uh, just kind of something talking about marriage. Like I, I found this really helpful. Just uh, And not that it does everything, but there's something about just when, when two people love Christ and when they're married together that they just follow Christ. So it's not just me trying to get to know my wife better but it's me just trying to get to know christ together and we'll meet at the top right when we follow christ together when we're both running after him like we have a way of coming closer together right if i'm just trying to if i'm focused on trying to just you know be everything she wants me to be and i'm not really caring about following christ and that marriage is probably going to start to fall apart and there's something about just following christ and loving him and god will bring that marriage closer together all right so we got um, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, right? And so, 
I, it is it is interesting. I mean, for those that are single, you just I, I have no idea until you're married, like how much your time and just your energy are just divided. And uh, there's something to be said about being single, right? And, and so here's the reason why Paul says. Why singleness, right? And three of them we usually hear a lot. It's kind of like, I try to put them in all in eyes, so they may not make too much sense, but I try to stick with the alliteration there. Um, so you got impending time of distress, right? Paul just said, like, man, things are going to get bad. It's, you, why get married if things are going to get bad, right? And then also the imminent return of Christ, right? Christ is coming back soon, so don't get married, right? That's verses 29 through 31. And then he's like, man, you can serve Christ. Like, you can just have freedom. To serve Christ, right? I was talking with Julie Peniel, who helped all you guys get signed up for your classes. If you don't know her, say thank you to her. But uh, she's she went to Hawaii this year, and she's going to Paris next week, I think. And I'm just like, man, like that's this is freedom to just do stuff. I mean, like when opportunities come up, you just you're not hindered. And part of it is like, man, when opportunities come up to serve Christ, you're 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 less hindered. So there's something really. There's something about that that's awesome. And I think there's a, the last one you don't really hear talked about. There seems to be something about just incalculable joy. Like, they seem to be like, I don't, you know, I mean, I think singleness is like, oh, it's like so bad. But there's, God for some reason says there's actually something good about being single. Like, there's some joy in that. And uh, we just don't hear that. This is cool. I think it's, it's great. And so I got, I don't know if you guys see it on there. It's really tiny, I'm sure, on your screen. But this is uh, Dr. Curavilla. And uh, Proffer, I, uh, he's a professor I had at DTS who's uh, he's a single guy, and he taught my preaching class. And just uh, this guy's amazing. Like, he, he's got, like, five degrees. He's like, I think I, he was joking. He's like, I guess when you remain single, you can just get a lot of education. <laughs> but uh, he's got, like, his, his MD or PhD in, in medicine. But this is, I pulled this directly from the DTS webpage. It says, single by choice, he has also a special interest in the theology of Christ-centered singleness and celibacy. And uh, he's, he's remained committed to that for his whole life. I mean, like, Dr. Bailey's like, are you sure? What if the, what if the, uh, you know, like someone, per-? he's like, nope, I'm remaining single. So I'm just like, this guy has just, he sacrificed that. And I just think, man, we need to uplift that more. Like, having guys like that, that is just cool. Like, it's just awesome to see guys who are just like, I'll be single for the rest of my life so I can serve Christ more. And uh, really believe it. We just don't, we don't hear that. It's like, get married, singleness is a curse. And it's just, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. No, I just, I knew you wouldn't be able to see the rest, so I, I kind of blew up the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- thanks. Put it there so you can actually see it. Maybe I should tell them they should do that, huh? Make it flash. Flash, yeah. All right, so 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1. And so now here's where we, we start getting into the um, instructions about food sacrifice to idols. And this is, it's still confusing to me. I mean, I read it a lot, but it's just, I'm trying to figure out, like, what's going on here. And the pagan cultures, they basically had, um, they would offer just sacrifices to pagan idols. And so... They've got a lot of issues as these people who used to offer sacrifices to idols and all the meat that usually they would eat is offered to idols. They're just like, man, what do we do with this? Do we eat the meat? Do we not eat the meat? What should I do? And there's So you've got all these problems and tensions that start developing out of this. And it's really, it's, it's something that really is interesting. We'll get to you. But um, it's not something they had to deal with for the most part in Jerusalem. It wasn't a big issue in Jerusalem. But when you get into Corinth, they're dealing with this, it becomes a lot more problematic. All right, so I think this is, this when I, when I was sitting there in class, I was like, well, what in the world does this section of verse, like if you were going to summarize this section of verses, <clears throat> what do you think is the main point of this? And he's like, 
to love your brothers, man. To love your brothers and to not be a stumbling block to them. And I think, so just keep that in mind if it's a little confusing. Um, that, that's really the whole point of what Paul's going at here. And so he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And uh, I don't know if you guys see in this verse, but it's basically Paul's way of stating the great commandment in a different way, which the great commandment is love God and love others, right? So he says, you know what? Do whatever you do for the glory of God. That's love God, right? And he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, trying to live every moment to please other people. Just, you want to love them and you don't want to hinder the gospel. And Paul just really, he cared about other people. Like, everybody's like, you know what, how can I please you? I remember the first time I I met Todd Wagner, the first time I had a conversation with him and shook his hand, he was like, how can I serve you? And that... That caught me off guard. I didn't know how to handle that. Like I was, just, I just sat there. I was like, I don't know, I don't know. I, like I got no idea. But um, you know, just having that attitude of how can you serve other people? How can you love them? You know. And I think there's not a, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Loving God's not mutually exclusive from loving other people, right? Those two go together, and we can love other people, and we can love God, and we're called to. And so, just something that I think, man, it just shaped the way that Paul lives. And so. All right, so they're free to eat, and but they're bound by the conscience of the weak. All right, so in eight one he says, "Now concerning food offered to idols, we all know that we all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up." So here's another slogan. So you got Paul that's like, "Yeah, we all do have knowledge. God's given us all knowledge. I'll agree with you. Yes, we have knowledge, but true knowledge doesn't puff up, right? True knowledge is not arrogance. You guys are arrogant. You think you're smarter, and true knowledge leads to love, right? If you really are smart, you love other people." That's what he's saying. If you're really smart, if you know God's knowledge, you'll love other people. That's just what true knowledge does. And uh, he continues, 8.4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Right? So they said, well, you know, we can, we can worship idols and we can, you know, we can eat and offer sacrifices to idols because idols, they're not real, Paul. They don't really exist. And he's like, okay, yeah, they don't really exist. You're right. But uh, <clears throat> but not everybody understands that idols don't exist. And then he's going to go, if you look in 1020, he's going to actually say, not only do idols not exist, but they're actually demonic. So when you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping not a god because there is no other god. There's only one god. But he's saying you're actually worshiping that's what's demonic. right? And so... He's trying to correct them. So you got idolatry, which is kind of this this theme for these three chapters. So the Corinthians were pagans, obviously, and uh, <clears throat> um, it's a term like idolatry is just used for like images or worship of idols or pagan gods. And it's really like one thing that's really interesting is idolatry is just not mentioned in the Gospels. Like if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're not going to see idolatry. It's not there, which is really. Interesting, because it just wasn't an issue. Like, their issue was more hypocrisy and not following what they knew. It wasn't worshiping other gods, right? And so, as the gospel went beyond Jerusalem, you've got kind of this issue of like, man, these people have a lot of other gods, and we've got to figure out, like, how to pull them out of that culture and how to worship only the one true God, right? So, um, but yeah, it is it is interesting. Just, man, idol worship is demonic. And I'm trying to think through, like, what are parallels to that? And I think, you know, the one... 
The one parallel for idolatry, I think the biggest one, I mean, without getting like, because we don't really, like in America, we don't really, for the most part, worship other gods. Like most people, <clears throat> if they don't worship Christian God in America, it's usually no God at all. They just choose to be atheists. But I, I think maybe one of the the biggest things that I think is demonic is probably pornography in our culture. Um, just how much that grips so many people and uh, just the worship of that and just the demonic activity and just how that's just worshiping a God that doesn't exist, it is no God, and it's not worshiping the one true God um, is probably, I think, one of the biggest parallels that I can think of for our culture. All right, so... Um, in nine one, he starts to go. You know, he t- starts talking about liberty. So he says, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you not my workmanship and Lord?" And all of these questions are rhetorical. Just like earlier, they were all rhetorically no. These ones, all he's like expecting you to be like, "Yeah, you know, what? I'm free. I'm an apostle. I've seen the Lord, and uh, and my, my, you're you're my workmanship in the Lord, right?" And so. All these things, Paul's like, man, I have freedom. Like, I, if anybody has freedom to do this stuff, but I'm not going to. Like, I'm an apostle. Like, I'm called by Christ. Like, I have a lot of freedom, but I'm not going to use that freedom. I don't want to um, take people off track. And so rationale for... Um, then Paul goes in and he's like, he talks about why why it would be rational for them to pay Christian workers, right? And so part of just giving is so that we can advance the gospel, and right? It's really important to give. Like, it's just something that, like, it's a it's a blessing that we get to take part in what God's doing, and that's a way for us to, to take part in that. And uh, Paul Smith's like, this is probably one of the best chapters if you want to, ele- like, just illustrate why it's necessary to give and why we should give. Because he goes, I'm going to give you examples from the culture, right? So a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd... Dude, all of them from the culture, if they work, you pay them. Like, that's just the way, that just makes sense. If someone works, they get paid. That's just kind of, even the culture does that. So it makes sense if you're working for the Lord that you would get paid. That's just logical. And then he says, example from the Old Testament, like he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. He says, don't muzzle the ox while it's, um, and just talking about how not muzzling the ox. It's this idea from the Old Testament. It's even like, take care of people. And he, and he quotes that. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm going to give you a principle, right? So you've got um, <clears throat> you've got those who sow, right? So if you sow, you reap. It just kind of makes sense. If you're a farmer, you sow, you reap. That just kind of makes sense in principle. Then he gives you like, not only that's what's been going on, that's how everything's, that's how I'm here, is because Christian workers have been paid in the past. Like it just, that's that's another reason is we pay them now because we paid them before. And then he says, you know, from the, the temple workers, right? So the, the priesthood and, in the Old Testament, they got paid for doing work. And then he also, he, um, in, in verse 14, it's like, this is what Jesus said, too. He said, the work, labor deserves his wages, right? So, man, there's something about just taking care of God's people so they can they can continue to advance the gospel. And if, man, it's so sad how many people just view like giving as a curse. It's like, do I have to give? How much do I have to give? What, you know, what's a tithe? What should I give? And it's... It's just not that way at all. Like giving's a blessing, so we can advance the gospel, and it's it's cool at Watermark that we don't have to charge admission on Sunday mornings. You know, and it, I mean, like we get to give the gospel, and people can come hear that on Sunday. That's man being part, like giving towards that, so people can hear the gospel freely. There's that's a that's a blessing. All right. And Israel's example. So then you have in verses 10, 1 through 13. Um, these verses are, are interesting because a lot of times we characterize God. When I think of like God was like not gracious in the Old Testament, He was like punishing and, and 
He had no grace. And in the New Testament, you've got grace and you've got God's love. And Paul says, seems to almost illustrate here, he's like, you know what? You guys think that just because God is gracious that He won't punish you now, right? He's like, God did it in the Old Testament. He can do it now. He's not, he's not bound not to punish you. And he, so he goes through. He's like, Israel, man, they messed up. They really got this stuff out of whack. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping stuff they wouldn't. And uh, he's like, don't just think. Just because, I mean, Israel didn't get away with it. Why do you think you will? And he says, no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. God is faithful and who will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Right? So you've kind of got this picture of like this army that's going through like a valley and they're just like stuck, right? You kind of got like, that's kind of the imagery that's Paul using here. Like you're just, man, you're surrounded and everywhere you look, it's like, I'm going to get killed. Like I'm going to die. Like I'm in temptation and this is, this is bad. And it's, it's kind of like, don't worry, man, there's, a, there's an exit over there. God's got an exit, right? So there's always, you don't ever have a situation where there's not an exit. There's no situation where you're forced to sin. Where you just got to go, well, I had to. There's no other way. There's never one of those, right? And so part of it is knowing that God always has a way. Paul's command is, and we, we kind of forget sometimes we memorize verse 13, but we kind of throw out 14. But 14 says, so do something about it. Like, yeah, God's faithful. Yeah, God provides an exit, but man, run out the exit. Like, take the exit door. Like, if the, fire, the building's on fire and there's an exit, run. You know, like, go open the door. Like, don't wait for God to pick you up and carry you out. Like, go, run, move. And so you've got, like, flee, which i got to throw. i got to throw one Greek word in here, forget they, which uh, after four years of Greek, you got to throw something in there. So I, that's, that's what it is. But it's, it's a present tense verb. So it's got this, it's present. It's, it's be continually, um, avoid idolatry, right? It's not just a one-time, like, oh, I fled idolatry, man. Like, I conquered that. Like, I'm never, ever going to have to deal with that sin again. You know, like, I'm, God rescued me. It's... No, man, flee continually. Like it's a you're gonna you probably get tempted with it again. Like don't don't think that it's done over with and you're never gonna see it again because that's just, you're just setting yourself up to fall. Then I mean it's this continual like man, be ready for it. Always be ready to flee. <clears throat> so like the last part, like idolatry is kind of like radioactive waste. You want to get from the area immediately, avoiding contamination and certain death. Right? Like in Japan, it's like no one wants to be around that thing, man. And you just want to get out of there. Alright, so 10.23. And then we got another another slogan here. It says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things bubbled up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Right? So, you got this, yes, but. Yes, yes, all things are lawful, um, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful. Yeah, maybe, but that's not always the best. They don't always build each other up. So, we we might have freedom, right? You might. I mean, it's not it's not bad to you know grab a drink or to have a beer. It's not bad to you know to have a glass of wine. It's not bad, but possibly is it is it worth it? Sometimes in our culture, I mean, I think sometimes you have some people that get so legalistic that they're just like, oh, you can never drink, you can never dance, you can never do anything. It's like yeah, and part of it, I think they're kind of right. Like sometimes it is better just to not avoid certain things so you don't even have to be a stumbling block. Right, and that's kind of what Paul's going for. He's like, yeah, it's not wrong to have a drink, or it's not wrong to do this. Like, you can do, like, there's freedom in Christ, right? We have freedom, but sometimes I think Paul's just like, I'd rather just play it safe. It's just safer just to, well, I mean, okay, so I don't have a few beers. There's a few movies I don't go watch. There's a few things. It's like, it's not that big of a deal, you know? It's like, 
I'd rather give up those things and just not be a stumbling block than indulge my flesh and take advantage of my freedom and then be responsible for maybe causing someone to, to get in trouble. It's like, I'd rather just not do it. And so he's, Paul, again, he's, he's guided by the great commandment, right? He's guided by loving God and loving others. He really does want to like please other people. He's like, I'll become all things to all men. I, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Hudson Taylor before. Uh, but just uh, if, you, if you've never read like a story of just uh, guys in church history who are just sacrificial and love other people and just make a difference from around the globe, uh, he was a key guy who went to uh, China and just had a huge impact there uh, just through his faithfulness and prayer. Uh, and you can read it. I think his book, he's got like an autobiography that's like uh, The Spiritual Secret. And so it, it's worth picking up and reading. I found it really insightful. But just uh, a guy who really just, everybody else in China at the time was so focused on themselves that they would live in the big cities. They'd kind of live like Westerners in another place. He's like, I just, I just don't think that's reaching anybody. And so what he did, he's like, I'm going to just I'm gonna cut my hair. I'm going to look like a Chinese person. I'm going to dress like a Chinese person. And I, a lot of what's going on in China today is because he did that. Like, he's just like, I'm not going to, like, I care more about them than I do about, I have the freedom to dress like a Westerner. I can do that. But he's like, that's not going to get the gospel very far, right? So he's like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be like them. And there's a lot of cool things in China going on because of his faithfulness. All right, so 14 through 20. So you got like these next three chapters here. I really think this verse kind of sums them up. It says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Right? So I got my daughter, and she's, she's one and a half. And uh, she is innocent. Like I mean, like what, I mean, the worst thing she's done, never done, or the worst thing she's ever done is probably maybe just not listened, or you know, looked at me funny, and like I don't know if I really want to do that, you know. But that's that's like the worst thing she's done. And she can still be, you know, evil. Little kids are definitely they have they're born just they want to be defiant. But uh, but that's like that's like the worst thing she's done. So there's something about infants, man. They're just innocent. Like for a, they just have an innocence that that's just not lost. They're not corrupted as much as we are. And Paul says, be like that, man. Be like be like infants in evil, right? When it comes to evil, be like infants, man. They just don't they don't do that much bad, right? And that's kind of what he's saying. But he's like, don't be like infants in your thinking, right? So don't just stop going like oh because my daughter she uh, she doesn't even know what the resurrection is I mean I've told her but she doesn't she doesn't really comprehend it so we'll keep trying but uh, but don't you know I mean like some of us it's like we have no idea and so it's just trying to don't be infants don't be like my daughter in the way that she thinks like be smarter than a one year old and uh, so it's a great verse today it's a good one to memorize good one that kind of sums up what's going on all right so now we get some really fun tricky issues but. Uh, this one's talking about, so we got the practice of coverings in the, um, of the head. So this is just, it's so weird because um, we have no cultural understanding for a lot of this. And it's been legalistically made in some churches or some things just get really strange. But um, <clears throat> basically you've got the, like Paul's just, you know, women are supposed to, you know, not cut their hair and aren't supposed to wear, you know, head coverings and all this other stuff. And, he, and, and so just kind of background is like, Likely, from the culture, from what we can like look at and sources that we have, it's likely that public head coverings were were a universal cu- um, custom. So it wasn't just something that he's saying like do this in the church, but when you go out there, you would do something different. It's like you wouldn't even do this outside of the church. Like so, don't do it in here. Like that's not the way the culture acts. So why would you why would you act like that in the church, right? So there is a little bit of cultural disconnect because we don't have. Um, 
the same practices. Most of the time, people don't cover their heads. But I mean, like, a lot of the commentators are like, but if you go into another culture, you need to be aware of those cultural issues and respect them, right? So, well, it was funny with that Kenny Kimmer thing, like when they talked about that it was bad that that guy was wearing a hat in the elevator. I mean, we don't have that as much even now as we used to, but like wearing a baseball cap in church, almost in a reverse way, was seen as like unsubmissive or, or just kind of disrespectful. Exactly, exactly. So you kind of got that going on here. So part of it is like, they took like like you're saying disrespectful. They just rejected like they're like I don't want to I don't want to listen to you guys. I just want to do my own thing. Like you guys say I need to wear this. I'm not going to do that. Like I don't. Eh, I'll forget it. And also there seems to be like part of the issue with the head covering. It seems to almost be a perversion of sexuality, right? It's kind of like I don't want to be viewed as a woman. I'd rather just be have equality with man, be seen the same way. I don't want to be distinct. I don't want to be a woman. I don't want to be what God created me to be. I'd rather be something different. And so you've kind of got these are their two issues where they just kind of. They, they messed them up, right? They just said, you know what? I don't want to submit. I don't want to. And I don't really want to be what God created me to be sexually. I'm going to distort that too. And uh, so part, part of it is like you've got this issue of submission, right? And so it's, it's a hard issue because we know men don't submit to Christ perfectly. So then it's like when we talk about women submitting to men, it just gets really complicated. But, uh, you know, are, are men submitting to Christ, right? Christ is the head of the church. And I think, you know, I mean, a good passage to look at is Ephesians 5. Look at that one. Read that one. It's a great passage. But I, I think, and I don't want to make the divide too much, but it's like, you know, men are called to have the same love that Christ had for the church. And that meant death on a cross, right? And I just think of, like, having that same love for women, right? That same love that Christ had for the church. That's a high calling. And women are called to have the same love that the church has for Christ, which I don't know about you, but the church doesn't always have a perfect love for Christ. Now, I'm not saying the women are less, but there seems to be a higher standard for men than there does for women. I, I don't want to push that too far, but there seems to be something more about the way that Christ loves the church versus church-loving Christ. I, but at the same time, men are called to submit to Christ, and women are called to submit to men. Now, I, I went to a wedding of my buddies a few, what was it, probably three months ago? Two months ago, yeah. And uh, the pastor was sitting there, he, he looked at the the gal who was getting married to my buddy, and he's like, the hardest thing you're going to have to do in marriage, it's like the hardest thing is you're going to have to submit to him when you know he's dead wrong. <laughs> when he's dead wrong. And, and uh, that's hard. I mean, like, just willing to love someone enough that you're going to let them fail. Like, that's okay. You know, like, men don't always get everything right in the church. We mess it up a lot. We do it a lot. But yet there's something about God for whatever reason, ordered things that way, right? And so there's something about respecting that. And uh, it doesn't mean that women are inferior. It doesn't mean that... I, that don't, don't get me wrong here. Women are not inferior in any way. If anything, they're probably smarter than men. But, uh, but we're, we're equal, right? But we are different. God created us to be different. There's beauty in that. I'm so glad we're different. Like, I think the older I get, I'm just more thankful for the differences in people and women and just the different perspectives we bring. There's just something... Don't don't try to blend it. Don't try to be the same. Right? We don't have to be. Right? So, and I think there's something maybe... Like in the culture, like greater authority means less service. Right? It's kind of like, you know, they call it delegation. It's like, higher I go up, the less I have to do. I can have other people do it for me. Right? And it doesn't seem to be that way in Scripture. Right? The more authority you have, it seems to be the greater service you have. Right? The higher you are, the more service you have, the more responsibility you have to love. So there seems to be something different there. And I think, now this is, it's a longer quote. It's by Early Ellis, but it's, it's really good. It does have some big words, but it's, it's good. It says, the mindset 
the mindset that places equality and subordination in opposition, right? So, you know, I think equality and, and to submit, those things are two different things. And, and that views distinction of class and rank as evil, per se, is largely a modern phenomenon. It may reflect the justifiable resentment towards attitudes of disdain and elitism that often, and in a sinful society, always flow from such distinctions, but it seems to be less aware of the ego, egoistic and antisocial evils inherent in egalitarianism itself, and sometimes expressed in programs for economic or social conformity, in a libertarian rejection of authority, and in dis- despisal of servanthood as a demeaning role. And so I just I found that quote. It's a it's a great quote that like sometimes we just think of equality and subordination, like we think of servants as just you know as a demeaning thing. It's just not like. Man, Christ is a servant. That's not demeaning. It's great to be a servant. We just don't... I don't think we we prize it. We don't value it. A sinful culture does not value servants, you know? And, and Christ does. There's something just different about that. All right, so then the Lord's Supper. And this is kind of like if... I kind of skipped over it in 10, because in 10 it talks a lot about the Lord's Supper, and then in 11 it talks about the Lord's Supper again, and just kind of wanted to kind of go through... There's so much there. I mean, I, I wrote like a 20-page paper on this stuff. So it's just like trying to figure out like how to like summarize it all. There's a lot There's a lot going on, and I just want to kind of brief glance of just kind of what's going on here. So it says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Right? So... In this, you've got like the cup is kind of a, it's a participation in Christ's blood, right? So it's 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 a participation in Christ's blood. Now the bread gets a little bit more interesting, is because not all like a lot of people they just assume that Christ the bread refers to Christ's body because Christ's body um, was on the tree, and it just kind of makes sense that that would kind of fit. And I think there's there like I'm not trying to like completely disregard that but I think it gets a little problematic because a lot of see it when we break the bread then that refers to to Christ's body but Christ's body wasn't broken because in John 19.36 it says none of his bones were broken so it gets a little confusing if his body wasn't broken but church history has done it for so long that we just kind of that's our natural association but I'm if you read verse 17, it seems to indicate that the um, the bread actually refers to the body of Christ, which is the church. So, now I think now both of them are Christ-centered. It's obviously all about Christ. I mean, the, we, the reason we practice these sacraments for 2,000 years is because they focus on Christ. They help us remember Christ. And so, it's obviously about Him, but I'm thinking that the cup seems to be more vertical, like more remembering Christ, our relationship with God, and the and the bread seems to remind us about God's body, right? And I think some people they forget the importance of church, and it's like there's there's something about the Lord's Supper that that really seems to highlight that God's body is important, right? And so, um, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And there's something in these verses in. I think 11, yeah, in 11 he goes through and just, a lot of times we make the, the bread and the cup very introspective, you know, like I'm going to look at myself and and I think that's there, like you need to, you know, check your own motives, but a lot of it too, I think Paul is saying, you know, the reason he talks about this in Corinthians is like you guys are unified, like the 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 blood of Christ and the body of Christ, you guys are unified, right? And so when you take part in this meal, this sacred meal, you know, you're saying that you're unified, and you're not. Like, you guys are so divided. Like, the Corinthian church is just, like, chaos and divided. And he's like, you guys are drinking this meal, 
And you guys have so many issues going on. And so part of it is when we take that bread, it's looking and being like, man, do I got any issues going on with other people? Are we unified? Do I love other people? Does anybody ask me to ask for forgiveness? So it's not just, you know, introspective. It's also going, man, is there things that I'm aware of in the body that need to be dealt with? So, guys. And so then he talks about spiritual gifts. And we could probably spend, I mean, like you always, has anybody ever taken a spiritual gift inventory? Yeah, I've taken like multiple ones. It's always really confusing, and because they always try to pigeonhole you in this, and you're like, "What does that mean?" But and there's maybe something there. Uh, but there's definitely like whenever you look at spiritual gifts, like this is one of the passages. You go to First Corinthians twelve. You also are going to go to Romans twelve three through eight, and Ephesians four seventeen through. Oh, well, that can't be right. But Ephesians four. Um, <laughs> it's backwards, but. Uh, but you're going to go to those, and if you compare all those lists together, none of them match. Like, they're not identical, and they don't really have... There's there's some that overlap, there's some that don't, and there's, there seems to be something said for that, maybe, is that spiritual gifts are... I, I, summarizing, like, in, in 4 through 7, he kind of explains, this is what spiritual gifts are. They're freely given by the Spirit, right? So, we didn't get them because of anything good we did. We got them because Christ is working in our lives. We got them to serve God, so we didn't get them just so we can store up treasures on earth or to make ourselves look better or whatever else. These are gifts that God gave us to serve Him, and we gave them for the common good of everybody, right? So it's to uplift the body. So, And that's what's cool. It's like you get to see so many people with different gifts, and it's just awesome to see how God's gifted different people. Like, it's just cool. Like, I'm in Crossroads, and, like, there's some guys, like, I can't sing for one, so I can't do that. It's amazing to see guys who are just gifted with musical talent and to see guys who just, like, love acting and doing stuff like that. And I'm just like, man, I don't have those gifts at all. And it's cool just to see just, just little things that they do that are just, people are just, I mean, my wife's the most servant-hearted person I know, and I, I have a lot of work to do on that. But she's just gifted with just loving other people and just caring for them. And uh, there's, just, there's just a way that God created us as a body to just uplift one another, encourage one another, and spur us on to all do things better. And I think don't, don't pigeonhole yourself. Like, I have the gift of teaching, so I need to, it's more of like, Take a look at everything that God's given you. Everything. Not just, you know, what might be spiritual, but just, you know, your abilities, your talents, your stuff. Like, the way God created you, He designed you in a certain way to be used. So don't limit yourself to just whatever you think might be your spiritual gift, but really spend time getting to know yourself, thinking about yourself, asking other people about yourself. What are spiritual gifts? What are some things? What am I good at? What do I like to do? And use those things for God, right? Um... So figure it out. I know like Watermark has the uh, their ministry fair, so you can get involved in that if you don't know a place to serve. Like it's a great way to figure out what ministries they are. And I think it caught me off guard when I first kind of started going to Watermark, and I I asked them like, "What do you guys need? What can I do that you guys need?" And they look at me and they're like, "What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "No, wait, what do you need?" And they're like, "What do you want to do?" And I was like, "No, what do you need?" And they're like, "What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "I just never thought about like." They really try to, to put you in places where your gifts are used, right? And it's like, how did God create you, right? And what they're going for is this, we want you to be effective. We want you to be effective. And if we put you where we need you, you may not be effective because that may not be where God gifted you, right? And so part of it is just learning we're all different and trying to figure out who we are. Um, spiritual gifts, worthless. And so this is the chapter. If anybody knows the chapter in First Corinthians, we all knew chapter thirteen, right? It's the gift. Of, it's a, it's poetical. It's it's pretty. You see it in sermons or at weddings or you know it's it's the love chapter. Um, and uh, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because you guys have probably seen it before. But just you know, basically an outline in the first three verses, Paul's just saying, you know, without love, 
All these things that you're given are worthless, right? All those things that God's created you to be, if you don't have love, it's worthless, right? And he says, he talks about the nature of the love, which he seems to, the way that the wording is, if you read it, you'll kind of see, like, he's kind of picking on the Corinthians. He's kind of being like, these are absent, like, you're missing this. And he's like, and then he's like, the gifts are temporary, but love is permanent, right? So there's something about, like, spiritual gifts are temporary, you're giving them for a time, but but love is permanent, right? And so, um, and he talks about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? And so I think, like, they are all, I think faith, hope, and love are all eternal, but there seems to be something about faith. Like, we're not going to need the same faith we have now because we'll see by sight. We won't, we won't have to, you know, wait. We're not going to have that expectation or that hope, right? Hope won't, our hope will be realized. Everything we hope for about the resurrection we will be resurrected. So there will be, like it still might exist, but definitely there's something about love. The same love that we're supposed to have now will be the same love we'll have into eternity. And so there's something just about the idea of love that just captured Paul's theology and captured the way he lived. Because he's like, man, this lasts forever. If I'm going to invest in something, that's what I'm going to invest in. Because everything else is going down right now. But uh, um, yeah, so love is, is permanent. And then you get, this is another controversial topic, you got prophecies and tongues, right? And so Paul's kind of talking here more about like tongues when they're not interpreted, when there's no one there to interpret tongues. And he kind of does this parallelism again. You got like the A, B, B, A. So he kind of goes back. So he says, you know, prophecy, which is just kind of teaching, it's just, um, he's saying the reason that I prefer teaching over tongues is because this addresses the body, not just God, so other people can be encouraged. So the reason we don't speak in tongues all the time is because Man, it, it's only good for you and God. We want it to be. We want it to be broader than that. And uh, problems with tongues is tongues without interpretation is unintelligent. It's just, it's just kind of it's a waste of time. And then solution to problems, um, you know, prayer and interpretation. And then reason for preferring prophecy. And he goes in. It's really interesting looking at like prophecy is for believers uh, to bring re, uh, repentance, and tongue is for unbelievers to bring condemnation. And you kind of got like Isaiah, he quotes from both of those. So in verse 25, he quotes from Isaiah 45. Verse 21, he quotes from Isaiah. All right, I think he, I think in verse 21, he alludes to Isaiah. I don't know if it's a direct quote. But you kind of have this idea that um, teaching is for believers, right? So he, he talks about this. He's like, it's better to teach because, you know, it brings repentance, right? Whereas tongues, if you don't tell someone to repent, you're just condemning them. Like if you're just talking about God without them without them being able to understand it, you're just letting them be condemned. Like they're going to die in their sins. Like they're not going to they're not going to hear the message, right? And so that's the reason I think Todd doesn't speak in tongues on Sunday morning, and so people can. Uh, there's probably more to it than that, but um, uh, part of it is you know I mean we want unbelievers. There's something. There's also something here is that unbelievers took part and heard their worship services, which is kind of cool. They they were evangelistic too. I mean and not. You know, it wasn't necessarily, they weren't part of the church, but they were definitely not allowed to come. They were definitely allowed to hear the message, which is, I know, that's been one of the blessings of Watermark. It's not just so I can't, I can tell people about Christ in the workplace, but I can also invite them to say, hey, come and see it, right? So we kind of got this, like, double command, like, go, you know, go out there, share your gospel, and yet at the same time, man, tell them to come, come. And so, um, definitely that going on. All right, so, and then you've got in chapter 14, um, Order in the conduct of public worship, right? So, part of this this whole this whole chapter is just you know God is not a god of confusion but of peace, right? So when to- when he's talking about tongues, he's like, man, tongues can just be confusing. They can just they're just not orderly, and so you know he's just kind of like in personal like as we're working through 
how can we uh, make service clear? How can we keep it orderly so people are learning, so people are growing, so we're communicating God's truth? There's some things that you guys need to kind of deal with here. And so one of them is just, you know, spontaneity. Like, they're just, um, like, don't shout out a turn, don't speak. And so you get the passages in 33 through 38, which talk about silence of women, which is overly complicated. But uh, <laughs> um, just trying to think, like, I think Paul's heart here is not, I mean, the funny thing, I mean, some, some people make a big deal out of this passage, and it's like, no one really speaks on Sunday morning anyway. If you do, even if you're a guy, you kind of get looked at funny if you, if you spoke up in church on Sunday morning as Todd's trying to give his sermon. And uh, I think part of it is, is, is Paul really just wanted to create order, right? And he just wanted to, to, to really have people to learn. And it just, for whatever reason, this was obviously a big deal. And so it was causing a lot of chaos in the church. And Paul just was like, it's just not, it's just not best. Um, it's a hard passage just trying to look through it and try to figure out, like, what does that mean for today? And uh, a part of it, I think, is just the big thing of, like, just be orderly, you know, love Christ. You know, men submit to Christ, women submit to men. And just there's kind of this order that, that God has for us so that we can learn and so we can grow. And it's not, it's not an evil order. It's not like God's out to get us, right? It's just the way that it's the way things are. Like, I've, I heard Todd say, you know, like, God never asks us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself, right? And so even with submission, that whole issue of submission, Christ was willing to submit to the Father, right? So it's He's not asking us to do something He's not willing to do Himself. He knows what it's like, and He know how He knows it's difficult sometimes. Um, and it, it, I, I find encouragement that we have a God, thankfully, that doesn't ask us to do things He wouldn't be willing to do Himself. And uh, that, that's great. That's comforting, you know, and encouraging, and spurs me to want to do better. Uh, all right. So then in fifteen, and here's this is a great chapter if you just want to like. It's used so often just for clarity of doctrine. Like when you're studying, like what is the resurrection? You know, what are the verses that explain the gospel? Corinthians 15 is a key passage for that. So keep that in mind if you ever, you know, need a chapter to go to. So 15, 3, and 4. So for I delivered to you as of first importance, right? So this is key. Paul's saying like this is, this is the main issue, right? If you, if you didn't listen to anything else, it's like this is the one thing I want you guys to grasp, Right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, right? So this is like, man, this is like the Gospel. It's like Christ died for our sins. This is the work of Christ, man. He died for us in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, right? And so everything, Paul's just like, man, you guys so missed this. Like, this is this is life. This is hope. You guys have just you've so distorted what's your body. You've so distorted what's spiritual, and you've kind of made these things too distinct. And it's like the body is not bad. The body is not evil at all, right? God's going to resurrect the body. The body's a good thing. Like when we don't have a body, that's a scary, weird place to be, and we we need bodies. God created us with a body, and it's not material stuff is not bad. And so he says in fifteen nineteen, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. We're of all people most to be pitied. Um, I was talking with a buddy. I was like, you know, the only one assurance that he was asking me, he's like, you know, what do you think of, you know, people who share the gospel and maybe, you know, try to add extras? Like, maybe you get certain benefits. Like, what do you think about sharing benefits with the gospel or making benefits part of the gospel? And I was like, I was scared of that, man. I was like, I just, I don't. I, I, there's nothing that makes me like if I'm trying to share with someone about Christ, I'm not going to be like, well, you know, if you accept Christ, your life's going to be perfect. You're going to, you know, your life's going to be, you're going to have more comfort, you're going to have more peace. Now, you might, 
And, you, and I think in general that's probably true, right? But I was like, the only assurance that I really want to give people when they trust Christ is they've got hope in the resurrection, right? That's the one thing that I think is guaranteed, right? When you come to Christ, you don't have to worry about death. You have no fear of death because you'll be resurrected in Jesus Christ, right? And that is, that's, that's the one assurance. I'm like, that's the only thing I feel confident and making them a shirt. And I was like, if you want to start bundling other things with it, then you got to be consistent. You got to say you'll be persecuted. You're going to have a lot of the curses that go along with it. I was like, you got to be at least consistent if you're going to do that. But I was like, man, the one assurance we have is we'll be resurrected. And that's what Paul's like, man, this is this is it. And so if you deny the resurrection, which some of them did, some of them were like, there's no resurrection. This is stupid. If there's any resurrection, like, we'll die, and there's no resurrection, we'll just be like fairies floating around. It's probably, you know, and it's kind of this, like, like a back to Gnosticism, as we were talking about earlier. Some of them saw this, you know, kind of divide of, of body and spirit. So they saw the body as bad, and they're like, when we die, the body's gone, and we're just going to be we to be perfect like we are designed to be without bodies. And Paul's just like, no, man, that's crazy. Like, the resurrection's all we got because Christ was resurrected. And so if we deny the resurrection, it's a denial of Christ. It's misrepresenting God. Our faith is worthless. Death reigns. It means that we have no hope in death. There is no hope. And we, we're supposed to be pitied. Like, this is crazy. Like, we're wasting our lives. I'm wasting my life because I'm spending every ounce of energy I have loving other people and loving God. And it's, man, I should just be indulging my flesh. Like, why, why not? And so, man, I got the same assurance we have of death in Adam, right, should be the same assurance we have of the resurrection in Christ. And I think that's just something really cool, like being at, um, just like I got to do my grandfather's funeral and got to speak at that. And it's just, man, there's just something different for having hope at a funeral. Like when we're Christians are at a funeral, there's just something different. And you get to see just people are just, there's hope in the resurrection, right? And they just, unbelievers don't have that. You go to a res, like a funeral of an unbeliever, Man, it's depressing. Like, there's just like, it's the end. Like, they're just, they're distraught. They don't know how to deal with it. They've got no hope. And it's, it's, it's so sad. Like, it is just so sad. And I'm just, we don't have that. We have hope. And that's, man, people will notice it, man. People will notice it. So be prepared to respond. Uh, the resurrected body. So then they ask, I guess there is such things as dumb questions in Scripture because, uh, you know, people always ask, is there such thing as a stupid question? It seems like Paul says yes because they ask dumb questions, at least in 35. But, uh, and they, they ask, well, what's a resurrected body going to be like? And he says, you know, he kind of, he likens it to a, to a seed which you, 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 you place and you harvest, right? So it's a crop. It's like they're going to be similar, like you put a seed in the ground and you would, um, you'd bury it and you'd wait for that thing to grow. And when that thing grows, like if it turns into a tree or a plant or a crop, it looks completely different from that seed, but yet they're related somehow. And so that's the best that he gives us is we got like there's going to be there's going to be this link, but it's not they're going to be completely different, right? There's going to be a link, but they're they're different. Natural body is going to be temporal. It's imperfect. It's weak. It's rebellious. Like we know that we all I, I know that at least if you don't know, I mean my body is weak. It gets sick. It makes me mad. Um, it's temporal. It's not going to last forever. It's rebellious. It wants to do what it wants to do. And uh, But our resurrected bodies will be eternal. It'll be perfect. It'll be powerful. It'll be obedient. Right? It'll just be, man, that'll be, that'll be a different world. Different world. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Im- immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain, right? And so that's just, man, that's encourageable. I mean, like, God really is working in everything we do, 
is, is purposeful, and he's just challenging them, like, be steadfast, be immovable. Man, always work for the Lord. And uh, everything you do in Christ is not in vain, right? You don't have to worry about it. matters. It matters to God, and He cares about it. So keep doing it. Keep, keep loving God. Don't fall into sin. Alright, so as we kind of start to finish up here, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. I like that. Act like men. It's like, come on, act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love, right? So just a challenge, man. Paul has a way of just convicting people. He says, on that first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be nothing, no collecting when I come, right? So this is Paul, and uh, he, he's requesting funds for his third missionary journey, so he's trying to raise funds so he can do that. And so he kind of gives them these instructions, like don't base all your giving practices on one text. They're not usually comprehensive, but um, there's some things that we can learn from this one, right? So one thing that's interesting is Paul doesn't use tithe like in any of his letters. He never talks about a tithe, which is interesting because I feel like all people are always asking me, like, how much should I give? You know, and I think a buddy was asking me that the other day. And I was like, you know, I've never seen someone ask that question who wanted to give more. And he was like, that's a good point. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, part of it is, you know, part, Paul doesn't use this time. He says, you know what, to the extent that God has blessed you is what the, the NET translated that way, as he may prosper. But I think the net just kind of makes it, that, that sounds a little, it makes it look a little clearer for me is, how much has God blessed you with? How much can you do? Like, don't ask how little you can give, but ask how much you can give. It's a totally different perspective, um, and and it's a in, the, in these verses he says on the first day of every week, right? So there's something about it that's weekly. I don't know. I don't. You don't have to be legalistic about that. I don't think it's you know, if you don't give weekly, it's not. I don't think that's a huge sin. But there should be consistency, right? And I think there should be something that it's not just well, whatever I've left over, I'll give to God. You know, it's not. It's not that. It's like, yo, know, man, when you start your week, like this is. This is how you begin your week before you, you go spend anything on yourself, right? You need to give to God first. It takes faith. It takes trust. And where's your trust at, right? Is your trust in yourself or is it in God? It's Man, giving really, it's convicting because I know I could do a much better job. And I just realizing like, it's, it shows a lot about how much faith and trust you have in God. And there's some guys that I just, I watch and I'm just like, man, they're crazy. I mean, they just, they give and they just trust God in ways that I just marvel at their, their faith. And it's, it's cool because it encourages me. And so just, man, be more giving. Be more giving. Um, and part of it is, you know, Paul's just being practical. Like, man, there's work to be done. Like, there's things to be done. So be giving. Like, there's ways, like, there's stuff to be done. And so part of that is we got to take part of it. And it says, and this is, I, I think your slides are probably different on this part because I think I changed it last night. But it says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you can send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to see now in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. Right? So Paul had a heart for discipleship. Right? And I think, I, what did I have on here? So he had a heart for discipleship and evangelism. And I was reading through because one of my profs last semester is like, no, discipleship involves evangelism and edification. Right? There's not this distinction. We think, like, I can be a disciple and not evangelize. And I, I kind of caught myself in there when I was just typing this up because it's like discipleship and evangelism. We always put them like, like they're two. But it's like, no, discipleship is evangelism and it's biblical instruction or edification, right? So discipleship is, if you're not evangelizing, like you're not 
You're not a disciple. Like a disciple of angel, like, that's part of discipleship. Like it falls under discipleship. And so I, I realized that I just kind of fell into the old practice of putting them next to each other, but they really are kind of, you know, discipleship includes both learning about God's Word and, and pouring that into other people, right? Alright, so it says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So just a reminder, I, it's just a, that's a strong uh, verse again. And I think part of it is like, if you, if you look at this, there's four... Um, as military commands. Like, it's kind of this military terminology that Paul uses here, right? And so he says, you know, watch out for false teachers. You know, don't fall into false doctrine. Be mature. Be strong. So you've got like this, man, stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. There's just like this military, like, never, I mean, I've never been in the military, so I don't really have that perspective. There's something about just creating men, making them, like, be diligent and and part of it, the thing the military doesn't do is they don't do everything with love. That's where we're different, right? And so Paul adds that in there. He says, let everything you do be done with. Because we're not just like a, we're not just trying to conquer, you know, and just destroy. But we're really trying to, you know, we want to be like the military, but like the military with love, right? And so it's, it's cool because I was telling a, a buddy a long time ago, I was just like, it's cool to see God, His kingdom is the biggest kingdom that ever is and ever will be. And it was never fought with the sword. This is amazing. I mean, like... Never before has any kingdom grown as large as this, and it's all because of love, right? It's God's kingdom is the biggest kingdom. And uh, so anyways, since it's military terminology, we had to throw some military uh, um, video in here. I don't know if you've seen it. I thought it was, I still, Blake Holmes was talking about it, so I was like, I gotta throw that in there. But, uh, um, it, it's a great, like, it's a cool video that's just like, man, you know, he's like, I slipped out, I was like, unsure, couldn't swim. And I took that leap and I heard my gym instructor, you know, don't quit, man. And it's kind of like, man, we, we're there, we all have our doubts. It's always like, man, dude, is this Christianity thing? We, we go through phases and we're like, should I really believe this? Is Christ really resurrected? Am I really gonna be resurrected with him? Is that really everything that I'm living for in this life? And I think it's like, man, jump in, man, jump in, because God has a way. What He starts, He doesn't. He finishes. And man, there's just something about just man that mindset of being in the military. Be strong, stand firm, act like men, but do it in love, right? We do it in love. And so, just uh, one quote by uh, uh, Chuck, Chuck Colson. He says, "True Christianity is countercultural. It means death to self, giving up self-control." And personal autonomy, as we know, is the thing modern thought prizes more than anything else. True faith means putting the cause of Christ and the needs of others ahead of self and doing the gospel. Right? I just think, man, faith is countercultural because, man, the world does not believe in Christ. And I know we're all 
out there trying to be diligent and just be more diligent. Just go against the stream. Be countercultural. Place your whole f- hope and faith in the resurrection because that's where life is. That's where life is. So uh, with that, as we're kind of wrapping up, any questions anybody has? Anything I can clarify? What's up, man? Yeah, great, great presentation. Thank you for teaching us first Corinthians. My question is just basically, you know, it's an interesting book. I mean, there's such a variance between the topics and subject matter. Um, without, like, any smooth transitions, as it, his other books will, you know, there's more of a smooth transition um, and all those up, you know, all the other books, but it just seems like, um, and I know the chapter breaks are man-made, being that we put them, but it just seems like if you... If you go through this book in particular, it's just it's stop here and then just three minutes it is hard like there's a lot like especially like chapter 4 with the rest you're trying to figure out like because he's like do you want me to come with rods and you know beat and then he goes straight into something completely different you're like you didn't even finish that thought man but uh yeah it is like I think I I don't know how to answer it exactly but I think there's something you know um just about like I think it just shows how many issues that Paul was trying to deal with and so Part of it is like, I think he's just like, man, I just got to go on to the next one. You know, like, there's this one. And just, there is some correlation if you start looking at it. There's more correlation than I think it might appear because his other ones are more logical in the way that it connects, and this one's not quite. And so it takes a little more work sometimes to figure out, like, wait, how does that relate? And I think a lot of it, I think most of them relate in the disunity of the Corinthians. And so I think that's why it kind of gets a little jumbled is because they don't really... There's so many issues going on there that it's like, okay, next issue, next issue. And a lot of it's just like, it's like if you send someone a list and you're like, I want your thoughts on this, they, they may not all connect, you know? Like, they're not, they're going to answer your questions. They're not going to try to make a logical connection. So I think part of it is because he wants to respond to their questions. There's not quite as much connection where the other ones, he's just writing them a letter so you, he can kind of frame his own framework.